Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Just what's on the show, well, actually, before I get to what's on the show today, just a note, the asbestos industry killed my dad lying about the toxicity of their products. When Stan and I were kids, Ronnie Reagan was on TV wearing a lab coat, pretending to be a doctor, uh, telling us that uh, doctors who have sore throats smoke Chesterfields. The tobacco industry killed my brother yesterday, so... I'd rather not talk about it. I'd rather you didn't mention it when you call. You know, I've got to process this. And I will do that. So, but anyhow, uh, you know, please keep his wife and kids and, and the family in your thoughts. Uh, Ted Cruz reaches a new level of pathetic by begging for Tucker Carlson's forgiveness. I'll tell you about that in a little bit. We've got a crazy alert uh, that has turned into a, a GOP death cult watch. I'll explain that. Tess Owen will be with us about what the Proud Boys have done, how they've essentially reinvented themselves after January 6th. And it's a trap. Mitch McConnell is now saying, oh, yeah, well, maybe we should reform the Electoral Count Act. It's a trap. I'll tell you exactly why and all the details. So there is a lot to cover today. But I want to start out with this plan to go after voting rights. And I can't assert that I'm absolutely right about this. Okay, so this, you know, just like back in, in March of 2020, you know, eight months before the, the, the election, I, I told you that I believed that Donald Trump was going to try and pull the same stunt that uh, the GOP did in 17 or in 1876, when the guy who lost the presidential election, Rutherford B. Hayes, was made president by the House of Representatives. And, you know, I told you months in advance that that's what I thought Donald Trump was going to try. Um, you know, some people took it seriously. Some people ridiculed it. I, I, on, on this program, I, I mentioned this to both Congressman Khanna and Congressman uh, Pocan. Both of them said essentially that they had not heard that and they hoped it wouldn't happen. And, but it turns out that's exactly what happened. So uh, this, again, I'm, I'm telling you what I think I see coming and I may be wrong, and I hope I'm wrong. But you'll recall when the Biden administration rolled out this $6 trillion plan to build America back better that included, you know, really seriously tackling climate change, upgrading our infrastructure, getting prescription drug prices under control, expanding Medicare to include vision and dental and hearing. Um, rescuing students who are, you know, caught in student debt traps. Uh, you know, they rolled out all this cool stuff. And immediately, a couple of Republicans, and it turns out I believe there were seven or eight of them in the, in the Senate. Actually, I, maybe it was more than that. Uh, but a couple of Republicans 
and a handful of Democrats, principally the so-called Corporate Problem Solvers Caucus. This is a, a group of Democrats and Republicans who solve problems for big corporations and rich people in Congress. They're pretty upfront about it. They, <laughs> this is what they call themselves. Yes, we're the Problem Solvers Caucus. Um, they decided to solve the problem of President Biden wanting to help people out and reduce the profits of big pharma and reduce the profits of the health insurance industry by making Medicare competitive with Medicare Advantage. And so they said, listen, let us just split off a little bit of this, uh, just the stuff that is the, quote, real infrastructure or hard infrastructure, and uh, we'll take care of that. And we'll get some Republicans to work with us, and we'll pass this on a bipartisan basis, and everything will be good. And But don't worry, we promise you, we promise you that we will also vote on the larger piece, even though the Republicans won't have anything to do with it. Well, the promise turned out to have been a lie, you know, uh, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, And we still don't have Build Back Better. We'll see if they eventually end up holding their end of the deal, and, but I'm, I'm skeptical. But now I, my concern is that we're about to see the exact same okey-doke with voting rights. We've got three good, strong pieces of voting rights legislation. There's the For the People Act, also known as H.R. 1, which is the strongest of the three. It's, it's expansive. It, uh, it's hated by Republicans and right-wing billionaires because it limits dark money. It demands transparency. It reduces the power of billionaires to control elections in addition to making it harder for states to gerrymander and to, and to mess with your vote and all that kind of stuff. So that, that's H.R. 1, or the For the People Act. Then there's the John Lewis Voting Advancement Act, Voting Rights Advancement Act, which, which uh, undoes the damage that the Supreme Court did to the original 1965 Voting Rights Act in, in the, the case where you know, the Supreme Court just basically came in and said, okay, you know, we're going to gut the Voting Rights Act. And uh, so, you know, the John, the John Lewis uh, Act fixes that. And then there's this third one that, that uh, really was shepherded through Congress. It's a, it's a pretty decent piece of legislation by, by Amy Klobuchar, who is the, you know, the lead on this, on this bill. But Joe Manchin signed on to it, and it's called the Freedom to Vote Act. And it takes the most urgent stuff out of the H.R. 1, the For the People Act, and makes it its own standalone law. But then there's this fourth thing, and it's just starting to pop up on the horizon. And that is, you know, I, I began this whole rant by pointing out that back two years ago, I told you that, or about three months short of two years ago, I told you that I believed, I was hearing from Republicans in Washington, D.C., actually, that, and I believed that uh, Donald Trump was going to try to pull off the 1876 stunt, have the guy who lost the election become president, and that he was going to do it the same way. He was going to do it using this law called, well, at, at the time, they just used the, uh, I believe it's the 12th Amendment, um, but it, it was, shall we say, strengthened in 1787 by the Electoral Count Act. And the Electoral Count Act just makes it very, very clear 
that basically the vice president can, or relatively clear, that the vice president can blow up the election and the House of Representatives can hand the presidency to whoever they damn well please. And so now you've got Manchin and Cinema and a bunch of Republicans saying, you know that Electoral Count Act, let's fix that. And what I'm seeing coming is that they will do that on a bipartisan basis, and then they'll declare mission accomplished. And say, you know, we they see we we fixed things. We don't need to change the filibuster for voting rights. And I am very concerned about this. I, I, you know, it doesn't take a weatherman to know which way the wind blows, as Bob Dylan once said, and it's true. And so I'm suggesting that we all be calling our members of Congress at 202-224-3121 and letting them know that, uh, yeah, the Electoral Count Act should be fixed, but it should be fixed along with, at the very least, passing the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Act. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So, anyhow, uh, Ted Cruz up next, and then I'll, I'll be picking up your phone calls, too. Stick around. So, so Ted Cruz reaches a new level of pathetic. This is amazing. Ted Cruz was on the floor of the Senate. And on the floor of the Senate, he said, and I quote, We are approaching a solemn anniversary this week. It is an anniversary of a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol where we saw men and women of law enforcement demonstrate incredible courage, incredible bravery, risk their lives to defend the men and women who serve in this Capitol. That's what he said. And he was right. But... Fox News, you know, billionaire Rupert Murdoch, uh, Pillsbury Doughboy, Tucker Carlson. They were, well, actually, Swanson, I guess he's the multi-millionaire heir to the Swanson frozen food fortune. In any case, uh, Tucker Carlson didn't like Ted Cruz saying that. And so he got him on his show to, uh, to grovel. And sure enough, Ted Cruz grovels really well. Uh, he, he says, ah, the way I phrase things... It was sloppy and it was frankly dumb. Uh, these are actual quotes. He says, uh, I wasn't talking about the patriots across the country supporting President Trump. He, he, he said, only, the, only those who were assaulting the police. Well, that wasn't enough for Tucker Carlson. He was like, oh, wait, well, even those guys, really? So then, then Cruz goes, well, thousands of people were standing up to defend this country on January 6th. Yeah, the Park Service says there were 30,000 people at Trump's rally, by the way. So, but Tucker Carlson still, even after Ted Cruz had, um, I, I don't know if it's sexist to say that he effectively castrated himself, but uh, that's, you know, how it's being portrayed in the media broadly. Uh, and, you know, groveling and, and, and submitting himself to Tucker Carlson. Uh, Carlson then says, okay, talk to you later, and, and dumps him. So, there's that. And finally, a crazy alert. One of my colleagues, the radio talk show host, Doug Kuzma, attended the Reawaken America conference in Dallas. I told you about this at the time. Um, they had this conference where a whole bunch of these anti-vaxxers and uh, uh, QAnon Trump humpers got together. And afterwards, a whole bunch of them got sick. I mean, really sick. And they all insisted somebody had put anthrax in the hotel's HVAC system. And Doug 
my, my radio host colleague, he said, I'll die at home before I go to the hospital. He wrote that on Facebook. Well, shortly after he wrote that on Facebook, he collapsed at his house. He was rushed to the hospital in an ambulance, and now he has passed away, too. The GOP death call watch is just bizarre. I don't know how to describe it beyond that. It's just bizarre. Reggie in Everett, Washington. Hey, Reggie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. One thing I was noticing at the insurrections, the people that were there, I did not see any African-Americans in the, the insurrection group. There were African-American policemen, but no African-Americans that I ever saw in all the film of that. I didn't see any. Yeah, it was. Uh, it, it sure looked to me like it was an entirely or almost entirely white mob. And, white and, men. And, and, the, and the black yeah. cops were talking about how they were being called the N-word just left and right. Yeah, yeah. And there were also not a whole lot of women there either. Yeah. So, yeah. And also, you know, at the memorial, there wasn't very many people there. I wonder why there wasn't more people at that. Well, the only Republicans who showed up for the memorial at the U.S. Capitol, literally the only Republicans who showed up were Liz Cheney and her father, the former Vice President Dick Cheney. And I never thought I would speak well of Dick Cheney ever again in my life or ever in my life. But the man showed courage. I mean, here he is, you know, with, uh, you know, an old guy with a with a with a transplanted heart who's on drugs to suppress his immune system so he doesn't reject his heart transplant. And he shows up in Congress to make a statement that takes serious courage. That was good. Yeah. 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 But I just at that memorial that they had outside on the steps, there wasn't that many people there. And I. I can't figure out why. Well, I think Omicron probably had an awful lot to do with it. Well, that could be. This this thing is just ripping through the country right now. It's uh, here in Oregon where, where, you know, we went from a few hundred a day to a few thousand a day to now I think it was like 7,000 yesterday. It's just it's just burning through everything. In Washington, there was like 15,000 yesterday. It was really bad. Wow. Anyway. Yeah, yeah, and those are the ones we bad. know of, you know. I mean, then you've got yeah, people right. who are who are uh, asymptomatic, which is probably, you know, presumably yeah. it's about half of everybody who gets it. And yeah. then and then you've got people who are sick sick but not sick enough to go to the hospital or even go out and get tested. They just figure, okay, I'll right. weather this. Right. And then you got the people yeah. who get tested and the, and then you uh, you know, it's just it's it's really tough. Yeah. Um, you know, Yeah. For, yeah, I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's a lot higher. People people just are staying home and nobody counts them, you know. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank you, Reggie. Good to hear from you. And uh, and by the way, you know, we have 800,000 plus officially dead. The the TrumpDeathToll.org number is 833,988. But we have a million and a half more deaths in the last two years than is normal. That's probably the real number. And once again, thanks to Donald Trump's incompetence, letting this thing get well-established in our country, we lead the world in infections and deaths. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, The more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. 
accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. With us right now, I'm very pleased, is Tess Owen, senior reporter with Vice News, who covers extremists, guns, extremists with guns, at vice.com. Tess's Twitter handle is Miss Tess Owen, M-I-S-S-T-E-S-S-O-W-E-N, or at Vice News. And our most recent piece is titled, The Proud Boys Changed Tactics After January 6th. We Tracked Their Activity. So, uh, Tess, welcome to the program. Tell us what's up with these uh, with these white supremacist, white ethno-nationalist groups, and and uh, you know, are the Proud Boys unique in this regard? Actually, it's probably more of a follow-up question. What? <laughs> let's let's start at the beginning. Uh, the Proud Boys changed their tactics. Tell us about this. Uh, hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Thank um, you. Uh, yeah, so I, I um, you know, obviously, Proud Boys were under a lot of scrutiny after January 6th. That was kind of when they became a household name. And I think to date, there are over 50 members of the group who have been charged in connection with the Capitol riot. And, you know, there was this wave of charges. There was rumors of infighting within the group. Um, there was this bombshell report that came out saying that their leader, Enrique Tarrio, had at one point been a, quote, prolific law enforcement informant. Um, and all of this was kind of prompting some speculation that maybe this was the beginning of the end for the Proud Boys. There was a sort of a lull in activity, kind of a few months after January 6th. And then around the spring, I started noticing just sort of scattered um, reports kind of surfacing in local, local newspapers or on social media of, you know, Proud Boys in uniform showing up to kind of right-wing events around a range of issues like guns or abortion or uh, masks, um, COVID-19 restrictions. And it seemed like they were organizing in much smaller numbers and on a much sort of quieter level. And so I started logging these appearances. Every time they showed up in uniform somewhere, I tracked it in a spreadsheet. Excuse and me, in, in uniform, what do you mean? Oh, so the Proud Boys, they have a uniform where they call it their colors, which is the golden and black uniform. Sometimes as a, their insignia is a, is a rooster. Mm -hmm. um, so they'll show up with their kind of their polos or something saying Proud Boys on them. Right. Um, and so what became increasingly clear is that they had been, they were kind of issuing these large scale rallies that they've been known for in, uh, you know, the years leading up to January 6th. And we're in the felt like sort of building alliances and trying to drum up grass roots, ground-level support um, among conservatives. Mm -hmm. And this was troubling to me because it signaled that, you know, told us a lot about their reach and resilience and also attitudes towards the Proud Boys, despite the fact that they have been known for um, engaging in violence, very well known for engaging in violence, and that, you know, including January 6th. 
You know, from from the 19 teens when Birth of a Nation came out, the uh, recruiting movie for the Klan, and we saw an explosion in Klan membership. Until the 1950s, um, it had become somewhat respectable in in white middle America circles to be a member of the Klan. I mean, it it, it, it became unrespectable again after the after the 1960s or disrespectable. Uh, is that is that the sort of arc that you think that they're trying to follow? That they're they're, they're trying. I mean, if you, I grew up in Lansing, Michigan. I mean, they're in the and I, I was born in, in 1951. I I remember politicians in Michigan being identified as Klan members. Robert Byrd, you know, who was in the United States Senate, was had been a Grand Master, Grand Grand Wizard of the of the Klan or something like that. Um, and then and then it became unacceptable. But do you think that they're trying to 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 go through that arc that the Klan went through in the 30s, 40s, 50s of, uh, hey, we're part of respectable society, we're just the fringe? It's a great question. I mean, we logged 114 uniformed appearances in 73 cities in 24 states over the last year. And in those appearances, we found scant evidence that they encountered very little pushback when they did show up, when they tried to you know, attach themselves to right-wing causes, when they showed up to school board meetings or city council meetings or anti-vax rallies, that they seemed to be ingratiating themselves and actually having some success. And on top of these kind of uniformed appearances, they are also trying to kind of whitewash their reputation by doing kind of, quote, community activism. So we also kind of logged some examples where they organized an Easter egg hunt out in a suburb of Chicago, or they helped, you know, they organized toy drives around Christmas, or, you know, just a range of these kinds of um, Good Samaritan activities that kind of, yeah, again, just sort of whitewash their reputation a little bit yeah. and help them foster those alliances. What is the... Uh, I, I mean, if, if you were to ask what is the what is the core belief system of the Ku Klux Klan, I, I think everybody would simply say, you know, white supremacy. Um, what is the core? Uh, you know, the Proud Boys have been, you know, they've been seen as brawlers. They've been seen as bigots. They've been seen as, uh, you know, uh, men who have masculinity insecurity issues. They've been seen as as you know guys who are into guns. I mean. It's kind of scattered in terms of public perception or understanding of who they are and what they're all about. Is there a single coherent thread that runs through them, or have they coalesced around a particular issue? The thing I like to call them neo-fascist or a neo-fascist street fighting gang is kind of how I tend to refer to them. And you know, they do have they they occupy this sort of very uneasy position where they one you know on one side have built alliances and and allies within, you know, quote, legitimate political circles. And on the other end of the spectrum, they are showing up and rubbing shoulders with Nazis, neo-Nazis and white supremacists. And they have this sort of plausible deniability where they can say, oh, you know, we have, we have non-white members, so we can't be white supremacists. Um, and I think this is kind of part of their, um, this is sort of part of the strategy that makes them difficult to pin down. And, um, you know, they can say that anyone who's calling them a white nationalist is that, that they're just sort of buying into, you know, liberal hype. Right. So I think they're quite optimistic and quite clever in terms of how they brand and promote themselves. And would, that I, is also what makes it so dangerous. Would it be a reasonable analogy or even could it be a template that they are very much like or trying to be very much like the, uh, the, the early brown shirts, the, 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 the brown shirts from, the 19, from 1923 to 1934? 
2004, I think it was, when they got absorbed into the military. Um, that, you know, this was a volunteer force that used to go around and, and basically beat up people on behalf yeah, of that's, def that's definitely a comparison that's been made, and I think that's, that, that does help definitely hold water. I mean, there's also been comparisons made to other nationalist, um, nationalist militant groups around the world who, again, use community activism to ingratiate themselves with local community and build those levels of support. And so, I mean, their strategy in terms of going local this year is also in keeping with the broader trend of what we've seen the far right overall and the GOP is that they are now kind of taking all that energy that, that, that we saw at the Capitol, that anger and energy, and we've seen that play out now in you know, city council meetings and school board meetings and in, in the suburbs and small towns. Um, so I think that's also, you know, something to, to keep in mind. The, the, the Democratic Party had been, which, you know, was the party, uh, sadly, of the Confederacy, you know, uh, up, until, <laughs> up until 1965 when, or 64, when we got the, the Civil Rights Act and then the Voting Rights Act. Um, the Democratic Party had been fairly well infiltrated during, again, going back to that period of the 1920s through the 1950s uh, by the Klan, uh, you know, openly infiltrated by the Klan. Um, do you see that kind of dynamic playing out between the Proud Boys and the Institutional Republican Party? Certainly in some areas, yes. I mean, in, in Oregon, um, there is a local GOP group, official GOP group, who this year hired the Proud Boys to be their security. I mean, that's happened at, in, in several other occasions. There's been an issue in Clark County, Nevada, with Proud Boys kind of trying to hijack the local organization there. Um, they've certainly rubbed shoulders with you know, more of the kind of fringier members of Congress. Um, they have, you know, strong alliances with Roger Stone, who, as you know, is a former Trump advisor. Um, Roger Stone's been described as their, their godfather, and he has hung out with them on numerous occasions and takes taking photos with them. So, yes, I mean, there is definitely a relationship there, and that's that, that, no, no way an exaggeration. The argument that was made in the in the 20s through the 50s about the Klan was that as they were, quote, becoming respectable, as they were integrating themselves into the Democratic Party, um, they were less dangerous. They were they were less uh, well, dangerous, I guess is the best word. Is is that rationalization being used among Republicans who are embracing these guys that, hey, you know, if we bring them in, maybe we can control them. They'll be a little more respectable. They'll stop beating people up or whatever. I haven't seen that rationale necessarily. But the one thing that was interesting in terms of what we were doing this project was that we were only counting uniformed appearances. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of examples. I mean, for example, on January 6th, the Proud Boys went, quote, incognito, and they, they were told to not wear their uniforms by their leaders so that they could blend into the crowd. Mm -hmm. And we found other examples where, again, chapter leaders were telling their, telling their members, okay, today we don't wear uniform. You're going to show up to the, the, this event, this particular event that could get messy. Don't wear your uniform. There's been a number of very violent acts, like a lot of political violence involving far-right actors around L.A., and with suspected Proud Boys, and again, they're not wearing uniforms. And so what we've counted is how they're trying to whitewash their reputation of being perceived, but, you know, how they want the group to be perceived. But I think increasingly the, 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 that's just an illusion. And what they get up to when they're not in uniform it tells a different story about, you know, the, 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 their violent proclivities. Yeah. We, we just have a half a minute left. We're talking with Tess Owen, senior reporter of Vice News. Uh, Tess, how is the Justice Department responding to this? I mean, the Justice Department, in terms of the overall 
threat of the far right, I mean, they have been pretty clear that the that you know when people try and place equal blame, for example, where people say, oh, what about Antifa? I mean, the Justice Department's own data speaks for itself that the threat of the far right is poses the biggest threat to national security, and that this is uh, this is constituting like a large number of their cases today. So, I mean, that's 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 one thing. Um, but uh, yeah, overall, we're going to have to see where the cases go. I mean, in terms of the January 6th, and yeah. Yeah. Okay. Tess Owen, you can you can read her uh, report. It's it's brilliant. The Proud Boys changed tactics after January 6th. We tracked their activities. The title over at Vice.com. Ms. Tess Owen on uh, Twitter. Tess, thanks so much for dropping by. Great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. We'll be back with more of the news of the day in just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Uh, more of the news of the day and your calls. Also, I've got to tell you about uh, Mitch McConnell laying a trap for Democrats with regard to voting rights. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Hey, remember when we had this six trillion dollar build back better bill that was initially rolled out it had you know come out of the senate budget committee bernie sanders is the chairman and it had all this cool stuff in it and then there was a bunch of conservative democrats for lack of a better phrase and a, a small group of republicans who said you know if if you'll let us just peel some of this stuff off and turn it all into public-private partnerships, turn it all into, into privatization opportunities for government functions so that our friends and our, our corporate donors can make a pile of money off it. Uh, we will pass a bipartisan piece of legislation that will rebuild the infrastructure of the United States. We'll do it in a way that's far more expensive than necessary. We won't raise taxes to do it, so it'll add to the deficit. And it's going to really help out our buddies, but we'll do it. And, you know, sadly, frankly, in retrospect, uh, House and Senate leadership on the Democratic side and the president all said, okay, we'll, we'll trust you as being, behaving in good faith. Because, you know, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Sinema, they gave their word. They said, yes, I, you know, we'll, we'll go along with this. And, and Pramila Jayapal and the progressives, you know, did their best to hold on to uh, the two of them together. But, hey, you know, they're not together and we're right back where we were. So that was a trap. Well, now we've got three pieces of really good voter integrity legislation. You've got the original HR1, the For the People bill, which does the most. It's the most comprehensive, and therefore it's the least likely to pass. But it does the most in making sure that our elections are free, are fair, that it's easier to vote in the United States, um, that it's harder for Republicans to game, or Democrats for that matter, to game the system. So that, that's H.R. 1. Then you've got the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and you know, which, which uh, picks up where the Supreme Court gutted the original Voting Rights Act of 1965 that gives the Justice Department the power to enforce these things. And then you've got the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, which is, its principal sponsor is Amy Klobuchar, but, but Joe Manchin has actually signed on to that as one of the co-sponsors. So we've got these three really good pieces of voter legislation. So Mitch McConnell is sitting there going, how can I blow this up? 
And what he's come up with is that the whole Republican scheme or the whole Trump scheme to steal the election was based on the Electoral Count Act of 1877, which says that, you know, along with the Article 4, I think, of the Constitution, which says that, or maybe Article 5, whatever it is, which says that if the, an election is in dispute, it gets thrown to the House of Representatives. And so Mitch McConnell is coming along saying, you know, we could reform the Electoral Count Act. That would clean up our elections. And Manchin and Cinema are going, oh, hey, that's kind of cool. Let's reform the Electoral Count Act. Then we don't need to do any other voting changes. Then we don't need to put a hole in the filibuster. Look out. Consider yourself warned. This is a trap. They're going to try to try to play the same Lucy football rope-a-dope scheme that they played with Build Back Better, only this time with voting rights. And we can't let them get away with it. Just wanted to shoot that warning flare into the sky. We'll be right back. And welcome back. If uh, my memory serves me correctly, there were 138 or 139 members of the House and eight members of the Senate who I collectively refer to as the Sedition Caucus who tried to take down our democracy after the Capitol was attacked. They were unsuccessful, but they continue to serve in the House and the Senate. And uh, there are some folks pushing back on this. And thank God. Demario Cooper is with us. Uh, Demario is the co-executive director of the Center for Popular Democracy. The website is populardemocracy.org. On Twitter, it's popdemoc, P-O-P-D-E-M-O-C. And uh, Demario, uh, welcome to the program. Tell us about the action that you guys are launching, this national action to essentially hold these people to account. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Tom. I really appreciate it. We are, today we've had actions, about 10 actions across the nation. Nine states today outside of vulnerable GOP Congress members' offices. We've had, you know, leaders and regular people from community go to those locations and actually just stand up to have a multiracial democracy. We understand that um, the attacks last year, after those attacks were really motivated by a lot of historical racism and, and the fact that people like black and brown people's voting power has increased in this country. We've seen it in Georgia. We've seen it across the country in the 2020 elections. We see those things as connected, and we see the folks who are insurrectionists and trying to trying to raid our capital as anti-patriotic and anti-multiracial democracy individuals. So we're we're really excited about this year. We're we're building a campaign, a national campaign, to defeat those Republicans, like you said, who are still who after the January 6th insurrection were still trying to suppress voters and pass voter suppression laws across our country. It's an extraordinary event. And how do you message that? How, I, you know, because some of these, in some of these redder counties, the, some of these people are heroes. 
particularly the rural, all white, and I'm, I'm totally with you. I, in fact, we had on this program a while ago uh, a, uh, a political scientist who had done the research that led to a piece that was in the New York Times some months ago pointing out that the counties that sent the highest percentage or highest number of rioters to the or traitors to the Capitol building for January 6th, those counties, no coincidence, were the counties that were most rapidly losing their their white dominance, essentially, they, where the populations of black and brown people were increasing the most rapidly. Um, so there's a huge racial piece to this. But how do you message that in, in all white communities where, you know, probably solidly half the community is fine with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing that we have to realize is, and, and what I actually believe is that we have more people who believe in, in human dignity and believe in the America that we all want to see than we do in, that people who don't. Right. I actually think like where we're at right now is we need to move our folks and, and folks who believe that there's a future where everyone here can thrive and survive. We actually have to make sure that we're engaging those folks and motivating them to come out to the polls and understanding what's really at stake right now and really understanding that it's them that's going to make the difference. Right. I, I do believe that there are like communities, of, of course, those places where people feel like um, they're losing their vote share or majority. Like if you think about Charlottesville, folks chanting, you will not replace us. Um, those fears are coming from a history that I think most Americans, and I do believe most Americans, um, we want to acknowledge the truth of our history, and then we want to build a better country for ourselves and our children and Amen. our grandchildren. Amen. Amen. So, so in other words, your, your principal strategy here isn't so much to uh, to call out to the better angels among maybe white people who are on the fence or who hadn't hadn't really previously viewed this as as racial backlash, uh, but rather to to reach out to the base of people that you know believe that multiracial, multicultural democracy is you know is a possible thing and is a good thing and is is really the fulfillment of the ideals that were laid out hundreds of years ago by some very imperfect people Absolutely. in some very imperfect Absolutely. times. Um, but basically, it's it's more of a base strategy that you're following. Do I have that right? Yeah, I mean, we want to have a conversation with our base that uh, creates messages that are repeatable, that they want to repeat. I think some people in our base actually have family members. I mean, this was a thing. <laughs> this was a thing last year, uh, or or maybe the year when Trump got elected. People were talking about, well, what's Thanksgiving going to look like, right? Because mm -hmm. you got family members. <laughs> who are on different sides of the fence. I think if we, we, we develop messages and, and lean into the fact that we really want to create a multiracial democracy, that we really believe that the best of us and our collective brains and, and efforts can create a better future for us, and then create messages that actually, that our base can repeat to folks uh, that are in their families. But yeah, I mean, our, our target is actually motivating our folks, right? Like we're, yeah. we believe there's enough Americans here in our country and there's enough citizens who believe that we can build a better country by having inclusion instead of division. Yeah. You know, um, it's time to move into a better future. I, I'm with you and I like the uh, optimistic perspective on this and, 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 I, and I think it probably has the, the greatest probability of succeeding. Um, we're talking with Demario Cooper, the co-executive director of the Center for Pop Popular Democracy Action, uh, the website populardemocracy.org, pop D-E-M-O-C on Twitter. Demario, you know, we've talked about the kind of the politics, the perspective, and the positioning of your strategy. 
What are the nuts and bolts of it? Are you going to be running TV ads? Are you buying social media? Are you are you uh, you know asking people who are a part of your movement or who go over to populardemocracy.org and sign up to show up on street corners with signs? I mean, what, how, how does this actually play out? And how are how can people who are watching who who think, hey, this is kind of cool, how can they uh, participate? Yeah, I think um, we we are uh, uh, Center for Popular Democracy is actually a network of organizations across the country. There's uh, about 50 affiliate organizations in 33 states across the country. So, like our plan is actually to be in communities in our base communities um, and actually talking to voters and citizens, um, both registered and non-registered, about the importance of voting and is participating in civic life. Um, I think that means that that people who um, who come in contact with one of our affiliates first they're they're across the country and if you're really interested just go to uh cpd uh center for popular popular democracy.org and and you can like get connected to to, to what we're doing mm-hmm. um but mostly uh we want to talk to people we want to engage our folks yes sometimes i think that means that people may uh do at what we call actions meaning that they may show up in person to an event like today like the the 10 actions that are happening across the, the state today um but mostly it's about building relationships and making sure that we're, we're staying connected and, and collectively saying the same thing so that we can we can actually help help our base understand the importance of, of civic participation. Honestly, we, we the strategy, if you look at the numbers, like if you really look at the numbers, like there are enough people. If we actually increase the voter population and we're engaging people and helping them connect to the, the what's happening in their community, mm-hmm. to the act of voting and participating in the in our democracy. Like we actually have the numbers to win. We are not in the minority right now. You right. know, like the issue is that people are just been have 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 uh, have been demotive, like unmotivated. Um, and I hate to use that term for real because I really think it's a it's a conversation about how are we communicating with those with with our base and the, and how do we make sure that they understand the connection between their lived realities and lived experience and the act of voting and being civically engaged. Right. So yeah, I mean, I think that means direct I, actions. I think that means you know conversations, et cetera. Yeah, I just tried uh, uh, plugging because uh, I thought maybe I had the URL wrong. I just tried plugging that acronym you mentioned in, and it it, it goes it maps over to the city of Corona Police Department, um, but populardemocracy.org appears to be center center for it's center for. Uh, popular democracy. Right. Populardemocracy.org is is the I'm I'm sitting on your website right here and it, it looks great. Okay. Uh, well, I, I I you know I wish you the very best. I uh, congratulate you on your effort, Demario Cooper, uh, co-executive uh, director of the Center for Popular Democracy Action. Pop and uh, you know thanks again for dropping by. No problem. Thanks for having us. My Anytime. pleasure. Yeah. And keep up the great work. In fact, keep us up to date on how things are going. Will do. Welcome okay. to willing to come back anytime. Let Great. Thank you, Demario. Great talking with you. Let's see here. Michael in Greenville, South Carolina. Hey, Michael, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. What we need is a joint resolution or proclamation in Congress to commemorate the heroes of that day. The Agreed. You, you know, and like uh, before they they count the electoral votes or the electoral college votes and all of that, the Speaker of the House 
reads the proclamation and marches out a representative of every department in the Capitol Police Force in front of the dais and dare any Republican to not stand up and Mm. applaud. Mm. Yeah, that's a good idea, Michael. That's a very good idea. I'm, I'm, I'm a retired Army bandsman. I know a little bit about pomp and circumstance. <laughs> I guess, yes. And, 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 go ahead. And my wife is, a, is a, an Air Force veteran. Mm-hmm. So we are flying our flag today. Yeah, there you go. Michael, thank you. Thank you for the call. That was a very, very thought-provoking uh, suggestion. I appreciate it. Paul in Wells, Vermont. Hey, Paul, what's on your mind? Hey, um, what's on my mind is to, is that it's been a year that we've been fretting and running with hair on fire and so forth, responses and reactions to all of this, which is natural, and we should. But I'm going to suggest that that it's high time and uh, that we actually turn it around and look at this as an advantage for the Democratic Party and liberals, and that it's time to maybe use a little jujitsu and 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 take this this time that the Republicans really consider that they are at their weakest time in in a multitude of decades, perhaps, and make them pay for this. This is so how specifically such an Paul? abuse. I'm sorry, what specifically? How do you make them pay? Well, hammering home the unscrupulous criminal. The, they are the party of criminal presidents and incompetence. I, in modern day, at least, I, I would say, take these weaknesses of theirs, along with searching for courageous and inspiring leadership on the liberal side and democratic side. And really, one of the biggest things, Tom, is to label, label, mm. label them as the right-wing fascists that that they have become. I mean, they're so off the rail. But they are the party of cheaters that needs to be, they need to wear that. You know, they, they play dirty and they cry foul. People need to really see this. This is, this is their The party of sore losers. But they are such the sore losers, and it's over and over. They're the party of cheaters. Label that. Yeah. This is what's going on. This is this is a time for to strengthen the Democratic Party now, and it's in, in a, it's a great opportunity. And that's my point. I'm with you, Paul. Thank you for the call, and thanks for watching us there in Well of Vermont on Free Speech TV. I appreciate it. This is the Tom Hartman Program. A book today in the uh, Tom Hartman University Book Club is 400 Souls, edited by Ibrahim Kendi and Keisha Blaine. It's an anthology, a remarkable one, a truly remarkable one. This is from the very first chapter. It's titled Arrival, 1619 to 1624. The subtitle of the book, by the way, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. And the book follows that fairly chronologically. 400 years ago, in 1620, a cargo ship lowered its anchor on the eastern shore of North America. It had spent 66 grueling days on the perilous Atlantic Ocean, and its 102 passengers fell into praise as they spotted land for the first time in more than two months. This chapter is by Nicole Hannah-Jones, if I didn't mention that. These Puritans had fled England in search of religious freedom. We know all their names, names such as James 
Chilton and Francis Cook and Mary Brewster, their descendants proudly traced their lineage back to the group that established self-governance in the New World. That is new among the white population. Indigenous people were already governing themselves. They arrived on the Mayflower, a vessel that had been called one of the most important ships in American history. Every fall, regaled by stories of the courageous pilgrims, elementary school children whose skin is peach, tan, and chestnut fashioned black captain hats from paper to dress up like the passengers on the Mayflower. Our country has wrapped a national holiday around the pilgrim's story, ensuring the Mayflower's mythical place in the American narrative. But the year before the Mayflower, in 1619, another ship dropped anchor on the eastern shore of North America. Its name was the White Lion, and it, too, would become one of the most important ships in American history. And yet there is no ship manifest inscribed with the names of its passengers and no descendants society. These people's arrival was deemed so insignificant, their humanity so inconsequential, that we don't even know how many of those packed into the White Lion's hull came ashore, just that some, quote, 20 and odd Negroes, end quote, disembarked and joined the British colonists in Virginia. But in his sweeping history before the Mayflower, first published in 1962, scholar Lerone Bennett Jr. said of the White Lion, quote, no one sensed how extraordinary she really was, but few ships before or since have unloaded a more momentous cargo. This cargo, this group of 20 to 30 Angolans, sold from the deck of the White Lion by criminal English marauders in exchange for food and supplies, was also foundational to the American story. But while every American child learns about the Mayflower, virtually no American child learns about the White Lion. And yet the story of the White Lion is classically American. It is a harrowing tale, one filled with all the things that this country would rather not remember, a taint on a nation that believes above all else in its exceptionality. The Adams and Eves of black America did not arrive here in search of freedom or a better life. They had been captured and stolen, forced into a ship, shackled, writhing in filth as they suffered and starved. Some 40% of the Angolans who boarded that ghastly vessel did not make it across the Middle Passage. They embarked not as people, but as property, sold to white colonists who were just beginning to birth democracy for themselves, commencing a 400-year struggle between the two opposing ideas foundational to America. And so the White Lion has been relegated to what Bennett called the back alley of American history. There are no annual classroom commemorations of that moment in August of 1619. No children dress up as its occupants or perform classroom skits. No holiday honors it. The White Lion and the people on that ship have been expunged from our collective memory. This omission is intentional. When we are creating a shared history, what we remember is just as revelatory as what we forget. If the Mayflower was the advent of American freedom, then the White Lion was the advent of American slavery. And so while arriving just a year apart, one ship and its people had been immortalized and the other completely erased. W.E.B. Du Bois called such erasure the propaganda of history. It is propaganda like this that has led men in the past to insist that history is lies agreed upon, he wrote, and to point out the danger in such misinformation. He wrote this in his influential treatise, Black Reconstruction, 1935. He argued that America had falsified the fact of its history, quote, because the nation was ashamed, end quote. But he warned, quote, it is indeed extremely doubtful if any permanent benefit comes to the world through such action. Because what is clear is that while we erase the memory of the white lion, 
We cannot erase its impact. Together, these two ships, the White Line and the Mayflower, bridging the three continents that made America, would constitute this nation's most quintessential and perplexing elements, underpinning the grave contradictions that we have failed to overcome. These elemental contradictions led founder Thomas Jefferson some 150 years later to draft the majestic words declaring the inalienable and universal rights of men for a new country that would hold one-fifth of its population, the literal and figurative descendants of the white lion, in absolute bondage. They would lead Frederick Douglass, one of the founders of American democracy, to issue in 1852 these fiery words commemorating an American revolution that liberated white people while ensuring another century of subjugation for black people. This, for the purpose of this celebration, is the 4th of July, Frederick Douglass wrote. You'll have to catch the book to get the rest of the speech. 400 Souls by Kendi and Blaine. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. I had a conservative on the board who was going to disagree with me, but she appears to have vanished. So, uh, Greg in Woodbridge, Virginia. Hey, Greg, thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Yeah, I had initially called in waiting for my son to get out of school. And I, it was funny because I remember one year ago on the Wednesday, I was doing the exact same thing. Mm. And I, I immediately... Quick story, I had used to do amateur stand-up comedy, and I got away from the the stage for a little bit. And the reason why I got back into it was because I knew I had to channel my anger and rage and frustration in some type of creative fashion. And I did. I tried to do that, and I did that with starting. The first joke I wrote back was referring to January 6th. Oh, I'm sorry, National White Privilege Day. Oh, interesting. and so, yeah, because I kind of immediately thought there's still I, I still have live around some holdouts that still don't think that that's actually a thing as white privilege. And I just figured, like, well, I don't even have to speak and make an argument. I just show people footage when they're like, what do you mean there's such thing as white privilege? Oh, are, you, are you unfamiliar with January 6th? Like it, it right. really did. Like it, it, it just, it, yeah, was, just, it was really the only way I could kind of deal with it. Like, yeah, so, just pause for 30 seconds and imagine if the Capitol had been attacked by by uh, men wearing uh, turbans or by black people. Of course, of you course. Know, uh, the response would have been, shall we say, different, <laughs> you know, hysterically different. Um, yeah, it actually it, it really is National White Privilege Day. Greg, thanks a lot. Thanks for your contribution to the discussion. Jay in Fairfield, California. Hey, Jay, what's up? Hey, Tom. You know, I was thinking about the 2024 election. Let's say that Trump and Biden go at it again. And Biden clearly wins, but the states decide not to send the electors, you know, to for the electoral college. And then there's a conflict. At that point, I mean, I was thinking, I know the military doesn't want Trump back in there to be their leader. So Biden is in control of the military. Maybe. There's so many hypotheticals right yeah. there. You know what I mean? Yeah, there are. And Trump thought he had the military. That's why he fired the, the Secretary of Defense, who'd been confirmed by the Senate, and illegally put Chris Miller in his place. And then Chris Miller was the one who, did, you know, on January 5th told, or January 4th maybe it was, told the uh, National Guard in D.C. that you may not go, you may not have weapons, you may not have face shields, you may not have helmets, uh, you may not use mace, you may not use tear gas, you may not use cameras, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, I, so, I, I'm... So the shoe's on the other foot, and, and Biden is in, is in control. 
Maybe. I mean, the, the problem crazy. is there's there's a, there's a huge right wing movement among enlisted men in all branches of the service, and and this is you know this is something that needs to give us all pause. I don't have an easy solution for it. Jay, thank you for raising the topic. I need to move along. Patrick in Edmond, Oklahoma. Hey, Patrick, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thank you very much for taking my call. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. Thank you. The, I want. Hey, thank you, sir. I just wanted to disagree a little bit on your take on Merrick Garland's, uh, Merrick Garland's comment. I'm doing my best. I, under, I fully agree. He's slow in the comment of the both sides do it gets, gets old. But I'm just trying to take a, a, a larger view in that, you know, this, Democrats would take this as an opportunity. You know what I mean? Just grab what he said. Okay, both sides do it. We're focused on violence. Okay, done. Now double down and grab all the other elements that came out of these comments. They really have an opportunity, in my opinion, to really grab the momentum, you know. And um, we really hate to, to, to get bogged down on just that on that thing, as important as it is. Yeah. Because I'm a Democrat, and I, and I just want to win. You know? I, I'm with you, and I'm trying not to play circular firing squad here. But I am troubled, and I, and I know a number of other uh, progressive commentators have expressed the same concern that you know he never mentioned that you know essentially one political party has become anti-democratic he never mentioned the attack on democracy itself as something that they were going to prosecute he never said that he said he that they were going after I, violence i understand and i'll just add this i'm in oklahoma you know I, but to give you a quick respect i used to listen to wcpt back in the back in the day i lived in uh -huh. a blue state I live in a red state now, and I had a, a conversation with one of my neighbors recently, and he brought up the, the, you know, about this, how I felt about January the 6th. And the first thing he brought up was, Pat, you know there's all these people that died in, in, uh, in Oregon. And, and, and I had the same response. It's like, look, they, no one there was putting our democracy at risk. Right. It was just like the earlier talk, is a disconnect in our electorate. Cognitive dissonance is... is we're all suffering from it, you know what I mean? It's the yeah, but both siderism. No, I get it, Patrick, and I and I hope you're right. You know, I hope that you know Garland is the good guy, and and he was just being cautious, and you know, not wanting to offend Republicans in the DOJ or whatever, and that you know he's going to be the white knight, as it were, probably another old racist phrase, but anyhow, he's going to be the guy who's going to who's going to lead us, you know, forward. Uh, I, you know, I'm hoping that that's the case, Patrick. I got to move along, but thank you for the call, Myron in Mobile, Alabama. Hey, Myron, what's up? How you doing, Tom? I got a name for you. Okay. What's that? Let's call him uh, G-Pop, gubernatorial party of Putin. G-Pop, <laughs> the party of Putin. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Know, uh, for a long time, Trump was seen as the useful idiot or either a Manchurian candidate. But mm -hmm. the, the Republican Party has stepped into that, those footprints. Yeah. I am absolutely with you, Byron. And you couldn't, you know, if you made a movie into this uh, or out of this, you know, 10 years ago, nobody would have thought of taking it seriously. Myron, thank you. That was a good one. Harold in uh, Enfield, Connecticut. Hey, Harold, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. I enjoy your show very much. Thank you. I'm a retired newspaper editor. And I wish I was back in it because I would love to write an editorial about what would happen. Most three things would be true if the fascists take over this country. And I think that, number one, the Democrats will still be there saying, we have your back, don't worry about nothing, right? That would, st that would still be going on, no doubt about it. Number I two, don't think so. I think you'd see a lot of Democrats in jail. That is what happens in country after country when the, when the nation is taken over by a neo-fascist or a fascist regime. 
is if the, the early people who end up in jail are the opposition yeah. party people. That's true. Yeah. Number two, I think that at least a half a dozen of the fascists in charge will have gone to an Ivy League school. Oh, I'm sure. No doubt about that. Yeah. <laughs> and number Ted three Cruz. is that capitalism. Oh, itself, capitalism. Yeah. Of course, will go merrily on like it does today. Of course. Well, capitalism is not at all inconsistent with fascism. In fact, fascism Absolutely. puts capitalism on steroids. Absolutely, yeah. Let me ponder that, but uh, yeah, thank you very much. Good to hear right. from you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 